I want to share with you some things that actually the Lord began stirring in my heart as I lay sick and dying a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> hey, it felt that way. Come on. I wasn't able to be here and I was literally laid out in bed, so I went to church in southern Oregon. <laughs> I went online and um, listened to John Corson teach down at Applegate uh, Fellowship, and it was cool. I mean, I watched literally the whole service, their worship and their communion, and then he got up and taught. And um, So I got to go to church anyway. And there were some things he taught on, a few of them that I'm going to rip off, I'm going to share with you this morning, because they were so impactful to me, so insightful. But it's, it's couched in, originally when I, when I listened to him teach, I thought, wow, Lord, do you want me just to kind of take this and, and repeat it and share this with, with the fellowship up here? Because I felt like we all really need to hear what, what he shared. And as the last couple of weeks have gone by, as we've continued on in Acts, I realized a parallel. And uh, something that the Lord wants to teach us specifically where we've been, where we're going in the book of Acts. And I will bring in some of what I learned as well. So really, you're going to get two sermons this morning, aren't you blessed? (laughs) Acts chapter 11, verse 1 reads, Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Skip down to verse 18. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then... God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Well then. It's a great title for a sermon because you have no idea what it means. Well then. In the Greek, it's ara. It's it's one word, ara. It's like saying, okay, alrighty then. It means so. It means uh, apparently. It's, it's a marker of possibility. It's just a conjunction in the Greek. Ara. Well then. It indicates, though, acceptance of something unexpectedly true. Uh, apparently this is the way it is. Well then, I guess he must be doing this. Ara. Okay. All right. Well then. God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. This was completely unexpected. This was not something the Jerusalem church had on its radar, not yet. It was surprising. It was startling. The gospel was beginning to seep. It could, be not, it could not be kept in check. It could not be held in Jerusalem. The word was getting out. The sheer power of the Spirit of grace was spreading beyond the walls of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. And now, and now, Gentiles. Because the word of God is unstoppable. And Jesus said it would be. He said you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is how the book begins. It is the outline as we've talked about for the book. First seven chapters were there in Jerusalem. Chapter 8 through 11, some would say 13, I would say 11. We are now seeing Judea and Samaria and suddenly the gospel goes global. 
We will see it literally take off. We will see the, the global movement of the gospel pick up in chapter 13. But right now, Acts chapter 11, we hit the turning point. We're there. The big change takes place in Acts 13. But you know, you know before there's a big change, there is always a little change. There's always a paradigm shift in the way we think, in the direction of our hearts, before suddenly the big change takes place. Chapter 11 is the paradigm shift. It is the well then of early Christian faith. Arah. Acts 11, 1 through 18 is a retelling, really. Retelling of Acts chapter 10. In fact, it's, it's a passage, these 18 verses, that some might skip right over because it's like, oh yeah, well we just read that story and Peter is now just recounting that story. But stop and think about this. Luke takes up a precious piece of parchment to proclaim the power of the gospel. A precious piece of parchment. The parchment in those days, the parchment from which this was written, or on this, which this was written, was not easy to come by. These skins. And it was so easily used up because they, they wrote in scrolls. The, the book of Acts itself is about oh, 34 feet long. It rolled out. But Luke... Inspired by the Holy Spirit determines this is too important. God saying to us, listen, I know I told you this in Acts chapter 10, but you need to hear it one more time. Because it hasn't quite soaked through to the center of the sponge. You need to pay attention. Anytime something is written or spoken in Scripture a single time, it is profoundly God's Word. But when it is spoken or written a second time, or even a third or fourth time, man, don't miss it. Acts chapter 11 is the paradigm shift. Peter's just back from Jerusalem. He's been on a little coastal jaunt, a little journey down to Joppa to visit with some believers there, raise someone from the dead, you know, a standard day's work. And then he heads from Joppa up the coast 40 miles to Caesarea. And on this evangelistic tour, he has an experience that was profound for him. And though Jesus had told him ahead of time this would happen, he wasn't ready for it. He didn't see it coming. In Caesarea Maritima, on the coast, the Mediterranean coast of of Israel, Peter travels up there and cavorts with a cohort. He comes back now to Jerusalem, but in Acts chapter 10, verse 1, it says there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. Or the Italian band, which doesn't indicate the kind of music they were into. The Italian cohort in the Roman army, and we talked about this a couple weeks back when we looked at Acts chapter 10. In the Roman army you had a legion, 6,000 men. Then you had a cohort, 600 men. And then you had a centuria of 100 men. Over every 100 men in the Roman army was a centurion who oversaw the centuria, the hundred. Well, there's a cohort, 600, meaning probably five or six centurions were stationed there in Caesarea Maritima, the cohort of the army of Rome there in Caesarea Maritima, which again was a stronghold of Rome. A Gentile enclave, if you will, there in the land. And at Caesarea, 
an uncircumcised Gentile centurion named Cornelius. His friends probably called him Corny. I don't know. (laughs) Along with a cohort of family and friends, got saved. They got saved. And we pick it up at the beginning of chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised praised the Lord and said, Hallelujah, this is great. This is No, they took issue, the Bible tells us. They took issue with him saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? Are you kidding? Peter! This is going to mess up your entire papal legacy. (laughs) You went to Gentiles, man. Uncircumcised, unclean. For a Jew, you did not eat with a Gentile. You didn't share a meal. The intimacy of a meal? Are you kidding? We wouldn't do that as Jewish people? It it, It extends the hand of fellowship. It extends the hand of approval to have a meal with someone. The fact that Peter goes up and eats with these Gentiles is shocking. He's saying it's cool. It's okay to eat with the unclean Gentile dogs. They took issue with him. The word is diakrino in the Greek and it means to oppose or to contend with. Peter arrives at Jerusalem with the good news of salvation now spreading... From Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost ends of the earth, to the remotest part of the earth. Good news! And as he enters the city, boom, there's the lineup of the circumcised saying, Dude, you are in trouble. We take issue with this. I mean, man, it's bad enough that the Samaritans are receiving the gospel, but at least they're half Jews. And now you're going to the Gentiles? Apparently... They had yet to hear about Philip baptizing an Ethiopian eunuch, which is way beyond the circumcised. I'll let you process what that means. Verse 4. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying. Joppa is right south of Tel Aviv today. So I was in Joppa, and in a trance I saw a vision. An object coming down like a great sheet, lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And as we study this in chapter 10, I proposed the suggestion that maybe this great sheet was in fact a talit, the Jewish prayer shawl. The way it's written is just interesting to me. Let down by its four corners. And on each of the four corners of the talit would be the zit seat which are those four uh, woven sewn tassels that would hang off the four corners of the talit and would speak of the authority of the Jewish man. It would indicate uh, perhaps his power. Remember, it was the, the tzitzit on the talit of Jesus, the hem of the garment that the woman grabbed hold of, thinking if I can just touch him, I can be healed. And power went out from him. So that's what I think is going on. It doesn't have to be the case. And if you disagree with me, that's okay. We can debate this in heaven. We'll both go. But the bottom line is, a sheet is lowered and it is filled. He says, when I fixed my gaze on it, verse 6, and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, 
Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord. For nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times. And everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Verse 12, the Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. Note this, without misgivings. The word misgiving there is diacrino. Wait, I just told you what diacrino means. Took issue. Contend. The same word now Peter uses in response to those who are contending with him. He says, the Lord told me to go without contention. The Lord sent me out saying, don't argue with me about this, Peter. You go because I'm sending you. Now, interesting, it says that Peter then said, these six brethren also went with me and we entered the man's house. So he's taken some backup. I'm not going up there by myself. And you can send me, Lord, and I'll go, but I'm taking some bros. Six with me. So there's seven of us, which is a complete number, and I know you honor that, Lord, so you'll protect us. <laughs> and so they head up, and Peter very wisely, very wisely takes these guys with him. Witnesses. And he reported to us how he, this is this man now, this Cornelius, verse 13, he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house, and saying, send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Now, by the way, that's something we didn't know in Acts chapter 10. We know the angel talked to Cornelius, told him to go get Peter. But he will speak to you now words by which you will be saved. Peter's adding a little bit to the story that no doubt happened. But it illuminates it further for us. God's intention is salvation. By which you will be saved, you and all your household, verse 15. And as I began to speak, (laughs) the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as upon us at the beginning. Pentecost. You guys were there. You saw it. He's saying, the Holy Spirit came upon us. We were overpowered. We were speaking in the languages of all the people. They all heard the truth being proclaimed. They heard God being glorified. And then I stood up and preached then. Well, this time, Peter's saying, God didn't even let me finish the sermon. I am miss. I'm coming to my big home, home run point. You know, I'm about to bring it down. You know, I'm revving up. And God says, Peter, just stop. Boom. And pours out the Holy Spirit on these Gentiles. Verse 16, And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Why was the Holy Spirit poured out on Cornelius and his cohort of friends and family in that moment? God's stamp of approval. God saying to Peter, before Peter could say yes or no, God saying, I approve. I pour out my spirit so that you know these people are accepted by me just as you are. The Spirit of God cannot come on the unclean. What I have called clean, don't you dare start calling unclean again. 
The Holy Spirit falls. Peter remembers this. Therefore, verse 17, if God gave to them the same gift as He gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? (laughs) He can be taught. This is a crucial event in the Gospel. As I said, it is the moment of the paradigm shift for the new believers. For the early believers. And you got to remember, they were all Jews. The church began as a Jewish thing. It was a sect, a denomination, if you will, of Judaism. They still met in the temple. Other Jews, though wary of the church, recognized them as Jewish people who were stating that they now had found Messiah. Believed in Messiah. It was a completely Jewish thing. And there were those in the church who held fast to the notion that along with baptism, along with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, circumcision and adherence to the Torah law was mandated, was vital. Hey, we love that we got the Holy Spirit. Wonderful that we've discovered Messiah. Yes, we're going to baptize everyone in water as a proclamation, an outward expression of the inward miracle that God has done. And we're going to keep the law and we're going to circumcise. It's part of the deal. Some would continue to cling to that for a long time. Some in the church today continue to cling to religion. Continue to cling to legalism. Continue to cling to the idea that if we do enough good things, enough good deeds, we can win our salvation, and you can't. You can't keep the law. The whole reason Paul tells us, Romans 5, the reason that the law was added was that the sin would increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. God proving that only His grace could save. But there were those, and here they are, taking issue with Peter, saying it's not enough. To be baptized in the Spirit and baptized in water. You've got to keep Torah and you've got to be circumcised. Paul would later write to this same mentality in Galatians 5 verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not subject again yourselves to a yoke of slavery. But, but Gentiles coming to church... Outsiders fellowshipping with us? Absurd. Ludicrous. Preposterous. And completely divine. This is what God was doing. Now, we got to give them a little room to grow here because the saints are on the upslope of the learning curve. This is all brand new. They didn't have 2,000 years behind them of church history to understand what was going on. They're just learning as they went. And God is gently teaching. And isn't it marvelous the way Jesus said it would happen? Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. We'll start right here where you're comfortable. We'll bring it right here at home. Teach you with your fellow Jews. But it's going to spread out to the Samaritans. We'll give you a little time to get comfortable with that. And then it's going to go to the Gentiles. And you're going to have to get comfortable with that. So in Acts chapter 15, and we won't go there just yet, they're going to actually have to convene the Council of Elrond there in Jerusalem. Council of James and the Apostles. You guys didn't see the Lord of the Rings trilogy, did you? Okay. 
They have to convene a council in Jerusalem to discuss this whole idea of Gentiles getting saved. And it all goes back to this early contention with Peter against this idea of the unclean. And the, and the, the vision is, is obvious. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, Peter still contends with Peter today. <laughs> still take issue. We're not even Jewish. Well, I don't know. Maybe some are. Peter himself, who personally witnesses the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Gentiles, the acceptance of God of Gentiles, would also struggle with his own misgivings. It's absolutely shocking. You get to Galatians chapter 2 and you discover Paul has to confront Peter and go, Dude! I'm sure he said that. Dude! You're eating with Gentiles until some brothers from James come from Jerusalem and when they show up, you start backing off from the Gentiles and only eating with the Jews. What is wrong with you? Either they are of us or they are not. And if God has accepted them, who are we? I think Peter said, stand in his way. But Peter would have to learn this. And what it reminds me, and what I think it teaches us this morning, is that changing our minds, especially to long-held opinions, is not an easy thing to do. And I am right up front with that, my friends. Changing my mind is not an easy thing to do. Ask my family. (laughs) Once I am certain about a certain thing, you got to show me, I got to hear the voice of God. Or see it in his word to change my mind. But Paul said, Romans 12.2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now listen, the truth of God, the will of God is unchanging, is absolute, is perfect, but our minds are not. Which is why, while truth doesn't change, our minds need to. We must have renewed minds. We've been talking the last two weeks about renewal in the life of Paul. Transformation. And that transformative process, the renewal of our minds, does not end until the day we go home to be with the Lord. If you are drawing breath, you are in the process of renewal. And we need to come to the Lord open-hearted and open-minded to His truth. Because sometimes our truth is not right. What do you do when the truth challenges what you think you know to be true? Peter in verse 17 again therefore said, If God gave them to them the same gift He gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Arah, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. There's your nice 22-minute sermon, but you know me. (laughs) This is a straightforward, repeated story about God's global intentions for the gospel of Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Romans 2 verse 9 says, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Now we need to let that thought settle this morning. There is no partiality with God. The greatest good you will ever do 
is accept the grace of God and spread that grace, that good news of Jesus to all people. All people. So here's what I've been chewing on for the past few weeks. It has to do with the impact of faith and truth on what we think we know. The impact of God's absolutes on our personal biases and our firmly held opinions. I'm going to get a little political this morning. I never do this, I know. (laughs) But some of you might want to consider curling your toes under your chairs just for safety. We are deep into a bizarre season of political theater right now. I mean, what a hoot. The body politic in America looks more like reality TV or uh, an episode of The Apprentice. (laughs) Something the whole campaign cycle has been trumped. A record-setting 24 million viewers tuned into the first Republican debate on Fox News. Another 22.9 million watched CNN's three-hour marathon debate. People don't normally do this, don't tune in, especially this early in the process or that early in the process. Now we're starting to get knee-deep in it. But what we're seeing happen, and I'm talking on the conservative side just for a moment, but we'll address the liberal side. On the conservative side of things, the insiders are on the outs, and the outsiders are leading the polls. And the political insiders and the establishment Republicans are saying, how did this happen? How is this possible? Curiously, all the liberal candidates are longtime political insiders. Establishment. No one's talking about that. How weird is that? But I want to ask you a question. Do you know the faith of your particular favorite candidate? Do you know what they believe? I'm not talking about what they believe or espouse politically. Do you know where they stand with Jesus? Oh, okay, Rick, now you're going to start mixing politics and religion? You bet. See, it's a little thing called integrity. We have been sold a a bill of goods, a lie, that we can separate out aspects of our lives, that we can have our business life, we can have our family life, we can have our political life, we can have our church life, and none of them intersperse, none of them connect. And that is an absolute lie. You cannot claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ and then go into the ballot box and vote otherwise. If you do, you lack integrity. So what is the faith of the candidates? Well, on the Republican conservative side, and by the way, it is Pulpit Freedom Sunday, so I am free to say whatever I want. (laughs) Now here at the bridge, last week was Pulpit Freedom Sunday too. So will next week be, and every Sunday, as far as I'm concerned. On the Republican conservative side, check this out, and I'm just going to go from the top of the polls down, just in terms of quote-unquote popularity. Donald Trump is at the top right now. What does Donald Trump believe? He's a lapsed Presbyterian. Now he's just started carrying a Bible, so good for him. He has sucked the Jesus cracker, as he calls it. He is, honestly, he just uh, recently was went into a, a faith coalition organization to speak and had his big Bible with him. Presbyterian background doesn't go. Dr. Ben Carson, Seventh-day Adventist, a very strong Seventh-day Adventist. 
Carly Fiorina, who stood up and at the debate, I think it was the first one, perhaps the second one, but she declared, I have a personal faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. All right, Carly. She's a lapsed Episcopalian who doesn't go to church. Well, she's, but she's espousing that she believes. It's okay, I'm not going to say she doesn't. But as Les so often likes to say, watch where their feet go. Are their feet wandering into worship? Week in and week out? Wow, they're politicians. They're government people. They're busy. They don't have time for this kind of thing. Okay? Factor it in, gang. Governor Jeb Bush is a convert from Methodist to Catholicism. Senator Marco Rubio, born and raised a Catholic, converted to Mormonism and converted back to Catholicism. Senator Ted Cruz, a born-again, outspoken Baptist. Oh, Rick, you like Ted Cruz. No, I'm just telling you what he is. All you got to do is listen to him for five minutes. Governor Chris Christie, Catholic, who, by the way, states that the Pope is right on religion but wrong on politics. I don't get that. In my simplistic way of thinking, I do not understand how a man can be considered infallible but still be wrong in some areas of his life. You're either infallible or you're not, dude. The Word of God is either infallible or it is not. It's not a little of both. So, Chris Christie's a Catholic. Governor Mike Huckabee, born again, Baptist, once a pastor, also rather outspoken about his faith. You have Governor John Kasich, an Anglican, who declares a strong faith, but also declares that the Supreme Court ruling on gay marriage is now the law, so we have to respect it. Okay? Senator Rand Paul, a Presbyterian. Well, at least his wife is on the board at their Presbyterian church. That's the Republican conservative side. Let's consider the Democrat liberal side. Hillary Clinton is longtime United Methodist, but I think she mostly tunes into church services via her private in-home server. Pulpit <laughs> Freedom Sunday, baby. Bernie Sanders who is gaining tremendous popularity among college students especially. Bernie Sanders is a self-avowed secular Jew. Martin O'Malley is a Catholic. Joe Biden, who is he in? Is he out? Is he going to race? Is he not? Who knows? All the talk. He's a lapsed Catholic. Born into the Catholic Church, does not attend. Al Gore. Al Gore, yeah. No, seriously, this guy's, there's talk of him perhaps entering the race. A devout Baptist, by his own claim. Once he was Southern Baptist, but he left that because they were too conservative for him. You have Elizabeth Warren. Is she going to jump in on the Democrat side? She's Catholic as well. So, some might ask me this morning, Rick, what does it matter? What the candidate believes in their personal life. They can be wrong on faith, but right on politics. I don't care what they believe as long as they can fix the economy or save Social Security or build a big wall. What they believe personally is none of my business. See, that was the, that was the lie of the Clinton administration in the 90s. 
No offense, but gang, what was the thing that was said more than anything else about the scandals going on in the Clinton administration of the 90s? It is my personal business. What business is it of the country if the President of the United States is having multiple affairs? That's his personal private life. That doesn't have to affect his politics. Even though lying here is going to translate to lying here. And if you think that a person's personal religious belief does not affect their policies, you are dead wrong. Of course it will. Absolutely it will. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we got to consider this. There was another politician who, oh, about 3,000 years ago, came on the scene, wisest political leader who ever lived, His name was Solomon. Listen to what he had to say. Proverbs 14, verse 34. Righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a disgrace to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Solomon, in one sentence, brings home the single most important issue in politics, voting, and the national interest, and that is righteousness. From creation, God established three primary governing Organizations on the earth. Three primary institutions for the governance of humanity. The government, the family, and the assembly of faith. Originally Israel, and now either Israel and or the church. Systems, institutions that would govern... Humanity, the family that governs the children and the upbringing of children in our world. The government itself, which, good or bad, is ordained by God to maintain some semblance of order in the world. And then, the church. Or again, Israel. Governments fail. Families fall apart. And the church becomes fruitless without godly righteousness. You take righteousness out of the midst of any of these three institutions and they will fail. Because righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Where the government is concerned politically, and we're in this season, so listen up. It is not the economy, stupid, that matters. It's not immigration that is primary. It is not Obamacare, it's not Common Core, it's not the National Defense, it's not Social Security, and it is not women's issues or anything else that matters. It is righteousness. Because righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And if we're not going to deal with the issue of righteousness, all these other politically charged issues are meaningless. Because this nation without righteousness will go down, will be disgraced. Now Democrats come along and they tout a populist message. Save the middle class. The middle class are who matter. 
Personally, I think all classes matter. In fact, thinking back to what Paul wrote, God shows no partiality, so I don't know why we're even talking about classes. But the Democrats say, populism. Go to the primary population, save the middle class. Republicans are calling for the Constitution. Whether or not they follow it is another thing. But we see this this battle back and forth about policies, about what they're going to do or not going to do. Meanwhile, without righteousness, it doesn't matter. You can vote Republican, you can vote Democrat, you can vote Independent, you can vote Libertarian. It does not matter if righteousness is not factored in. And the Holy Spirit tasked Solomon to pin the most important single issue for the body politic of any nation, righteousness. Which simply put is rightness with God. Notice what Solomon does not write. He doesn't say conservatism exalts a nation. He doesn't promote capitalism to exalt a nation. That's what we need. More capitalism. More conservative principles. That will not exalt the nation. He doesn't extol the virtues of libertarianism. If we just get the government out of our business, we'll be fine. It's not what Solomon said. He doesn't promote democracy or socialism or communism or fascism. Here is a bizarre but absolutely true statement. Think about this. Any ism, any government model will work if it be grounded in righteousness. Anyone. Well, I could never vote for a socialist. You know what? If grounded in righteousness, socialism could work. Now, it hasn't been. Therefore, it's never worked. The reason why this country grew and was blessed and has been blessed by God so richly is because of conservative principles. No. It's because of righteousness. It's because this country deemed to be founded on the Word of God. The Constitution written on the Ten Commandments based on the Bible and our founding fathers themselves said if you take the Bible out of America, America will fall. Any ism, communism, hey man, if it's righteously led, could work. Look at the first century church. All the believers had all things in common. They laid everything at the apostles' feet. Rick, are you a communist? Absolutely not. But if righteousness is the case, even that. Dictatorship, if grounded in righteousness, can work. Amazingly, the only biblical backing for a governing model is a theocratic dictatorship. That's where the Bible takes us. As the Bible promises is going to happen, the only governing model that will work is the divine dictatorship of the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, and the world has yet to see this. But when he returns and rules and reigns out of Jerusalem, dictatorship, absolute authority in one man on the planet, Jesus, and it's going to work perfectly. The Bible says, Jeremiah 23.5, Behold, the days are coming 
declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. You see why Jesus referred to it as the gospel of the kingdom? Because it will be a kingdom. Based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now please hear me. I'm an American. Born and raised. I love this country. I was among those who traveled through the the freedom train. Back in 1976, the bicentennial year. You remember the freedom train? Went all around America. It stopped in San Juan Capistrano. And my school took a field trip. And I was so proud that day. I had a hang tin red, white, and blue t-shirt I wore. I grew up loving America. Loving the United States. Loving democracy. Loving the principles of our Constitution. I have our Constitution in my office. I have read it, I have studied it, I believe in it, I think it's the greatest document ever developed by man on the planet in history, providing the greatest nation in history. However, we are 239 and a half years a nation and we're coming apart. Why? Because righteousness exalts a nation. And sin is a disgrace to any people. And if you look at the governing choices that have been made in this government, and I would take you back to the 60s. Things like removing prayer from the public school. Oh, that's just a pastor thing to harp on. Okay, then let me harp. (laughs) Going to the 70s, and the whole decision of Roe v. Wade that opened up the murder of unborn children. It's sin. And sin is a disgrace to any people. To, again, the recent Supreme Court decision. To redefine as if they had the right. To redefine marriage as God instituted it. Sin is a disgrace to a people. Why are we having trouble? Why does America seem to be sideways right now? Why isn't our republic working? Why isn't the Constitution? We just need to get back to the Constitution. No, we need to get back to righteousness. Because righteousness alone will exalt a nation. You know what? It's not guns that are the problem. Oh no. Please don't go there, Rick. I'm going to go there. The gun violence that we continue to see happening... Debase and immoral people walking into schools and opening fire. Why is that happening? Why so much? Because too many people have their hands on guns. No. That's the superficial answer. You want to get deep? You want the real answer? You want to know why that man shot and killed so many people in southern Oregon? Down down in um, Roseburg this last week? You want to know why? Because we don't have a culture of life in this country. Because we have developed a culture of death. Because the more you take righteousness out, the more you take God out, the more hopelessness there is. What did the guy do? He killed a bunch of people and then committed suicide. Well, that was his goal in the first place. Zero hope. Lots of hatred. Lawlessness. We have to go back to the basics of why there is a disgrace in America today, and it is sin. 
We would not see people shooting up other people if there was a basic common respect for life that has been gutted from our laws. Life is a righteous principle. Now, as I said, I was born and raised in the land of the free, the home of the brave. I love this country. But you know what? I was also born again. And the moment I became born again, in that day, in that second that I received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I became an indigenous citizen of a better country. In the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith, the faithful, after listing a number of them, are described this way. They were strangers and exiles on the earth. Wait a minute. Moses is in that list. A stranger and an exile? Who was the leader of Israel? Look at all the people who are in the list. Great, faithful people of Israel, God's nation. And yet, the Lord calls them strangers and exiles on the earth. I'm an American, and yet I am a stranger and an exile on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that's something that needs to be constant in our mindset. We have a better country we're going to. Now that doesn't mean we cast out America and go, okay, well then whatever, I don't care about this country anymore. No, you care deeply for this country because we need this country to understand there's a better country. And if this country would model itself after the better country based in righteousness, hallelujah. As a citizen of that better country, the mindset that I have going into the ballot box must be different must be transformed. And please hear me, it is not Republican, it is not Democrat, it is not Tea Party, it is not Libertarian, Independent, or Socialist, it is Christian. Well, can I be a Christian and a Republican? Sure. Christian first. Can I be a Christian and a Libertarian? Yeah. Christian first. Can I be a Christian and a Socialist? Hey. Christian first. A lot, please, listen. Allow your faith in Jesus to inform your politics. To inform your voting. And rather than voting party line, vote Jesus line. So what does all this mean? What does this look like? As I said before, if my faith does not inform my politics, I am not walking with integrity. I'm living a lie. You cannot separate the two. If you're trying to separate the two, you are living a lie. So tell me what this looks like, alright? Concerning the economy. Biblical principle concerning the economy. Jesus said, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink, or your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. There's Jesus' answer to the economy. 
well, we got to get someone in there who's going to, you know, bring lots of money back to America. Hey, you know what? Whatever. God gives me what I need. Amen. God is my provider. And God's economics work far better than man's economics ever can or will. So there's the economy. Concerning education. Psalm 34.11 Come you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 22.6 Train up a child in the way he should go. And even when he's old he will not depart from it. Matthew 19.14 Let the children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. You want to fix the education problem in America? Start teaching Jesus. Moms and dads, you want to have an impact on your child's life that's eternal? You teach them about Jesus Christ. You bring them to the Lord. And all other education is important. Learning to read, the writing, the arithmetic. I get it, all of that. But if it doesn't, if it's not used toward Jesus, for Jesus, about Jesus, then what's the point? You mean the most brilliant person in the world, Stephen Hawking, and be on a one-way ride to hell because you have not come to Jesus Christ. How about health care? Concerning health care, those of you you know you want to vote regarding health care, Obamacare, the whole thing, therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. There's health care. Done. Number four. <laughs> Concerning women's issues. Women's issues. Ladies, curl those toes. Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, ladies, Jesus looks at you exactly as He looks at His sons. Sons and daughters, children, beloved by the Lord, all receiving the same inheritance. So much for women's issues. <laughs> I know I'm just hitting snippets and we could talk more about this, but what's all this got to do with Acts chapter 11? I'm going to go there. What is the one issue more than any other that vaulted Donald Trump to the head of the Republican race? You know what it is. Immigration. Concerning immigration... What do we as followers of Jesus Christ do? Listen. Some fast facts really quickly here. We are approaching the largest influx of immigrants in our nation's history right now. Now, the great European immigration of the 20th century was the biggest, looking back in history. At that time, immigration accounted for 15% of the population. That's a big deal. That's a large influx. Right now, we're about to beat that. Right now, immigration accounts for 14% of the feet on the ground in America. And we are quickly approaching, completely overwhelming, what immigration was in the 20th century. Most of the current immigration is not from Europe. That has passed. Primarily right now, it's from East Asian and Latin countries. 14% and rising. White Americans who made up 82% of the population in 1965, today make up 64% of the population. And by 2055, I don't think we'll be here, but should we be here, by 2055, they will cease to be the majority in America. Which reminds me of a funny moment. We have a new bird in our house, 
named Linus, not John Linus, Linus L-I-N-U-S. <laughs> Didn't name the bird after you, John. But Linus from the Peanuts cartoons, you know. So Linus is a cute little bird. And, but we were trying to come up with a name. Anna Maria is sitting on the chair right next to me, and we're laughing and, and throwing out names, just all kinds of bizarre names. And Anna Maria goes, I know, Dad, how about Cracker? <laughs> And coming from my African-American daughter, that just cracked me up. I'm like, Anna Marie, if it was a white bird, I'd be all for it. By 2055, white Americans will cease to be the majority. In fact, there will be no majority ethnic group in America. No single majority. It will be completely spread. State Department official Ann Richard stated last Saturday that U.S. officials would like to see a steep ramp up of refugees coming into the country by 2017. Secretary of State uh, John Kerry is calling for 85,000 refugees to be let into the country in 2016 and another 100,000 refugees to be allowed into the country by 2017. So approaching 200,000 refugees coming out of the Syria crisis, coming out of Iraq, coming out of Mexico. Now a Reuters Ipsos poll says that Americans have decidedly mixed opinions on what the U.S. should do to support refugees from conflicts around the world. Most Americans, 60%, think the U.S. should limit the number of refugees allowed into this country, and only 20% say the U.S. should take in more refugees, especially from Syria. Why? Well, what's the primary belief system coming out of Syria? It's Muslim. We can't have that. Muslims invading this country? And how are we going to know if they are plants from ISIS coming into this country? The poll goes on to say most Americans also think the U.S. shouldn't pick and choose what refugees to let in. 51% believe that we shouldn't pick and choose and only allow Christian refugees and not Muslim ones. And ironically... Hundreds of thousands of Iraqi and Syrian Christian refugees have been denied visas into the United States. Did you know that? Our, our guest speaker a couple of, a few Mondays back now was sharing that. Visas are being denied Christian Syrian refugees, but Muslim Syrian refugees are being allowed to flow into the country. Now, hold your thought on this. I'm not making a value judgment yet. <laughs> well, but I'm not yet. We know ISIS intends to use the Syrian crisis to get into America. We know that. It's no question. We know Mexican drug lords and cartels already control land 70 miles inside of U.S. borders. We know this. And so Donald Trump is running hot on the fuel of conservatives cheering him on. As he says, kick him out. Send the refugees back to their own land. Now he's softened a bit in recent days saying we need to send them back to, to refugee camps that are set up you know, to provide for them, but back in their own countries and not have them come here. Citizens of a better country, listen carefully. There is a far bigger issue at stake than the ethnic makeup of America. 
There's a far bigger issue at stake than the financial burden that may come on this country because of refugees and immigrants coming in. A far greater issue even than the threats posed by those who would do harm to America and the West. Well, what is that issue? Citizens of a better country, our king put it this way. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. That is all the ethnos. All the peoples. All the peoples. What if the Lord is sending them to us because we're not going to them? And I actually for the first time had this thought. I was offended when I heard that Christian Syrians are being denied refuge in the United States. And I believe they should be. However, Muslim Syrians coming into the United States, what do we do with them? How about tell them about Jesus Christ? How about the church looking at the influx of immigration as an opportunity for the gospel? I'm not talking about how you feel politically, whether or not we should build a wall and secure the borders and all of that. That's not the issue at stake here. The issue at stake is not policy, it's people. Jesus loves people. Jesus wants all people to be saved. And whatever you want to believe politically, man... People have to come first because righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a disgrace to any people. We're not to be dictated by fear, but by faith. Someone from another country comes in here and shoots me all up. I'm going home. Praise the Lord. But until I go home, in whatever manner I go home... My calling, your calling, our calling is to go to the lost in this world, whoever they are, whatever they look like, whether they're from Mexico or Syria or anywhere else. And this is an odd teaching uh, dealing with immigration for us on North Whidbey Island. Not seeing a lot of immigrants flowing into Oak Harbor right now. We may. Skagit Valley is filled with Hispanic people coming up from Mexico looking for some kind of chance at life. Well, Rick, a lot of them are illegal. Yeah, and lost. And maybe we ought to think about that. I knew this was going to go long today. Turning your Bibles to Isaiah 56, I want to quickly show you one more thing and we'll be done. Listen to the divine description of righteousness. If righteousness indeed exalts a nation... And sin is a disgrace to any people based on the word of God. Look at Isaiah 56. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord, preserve justice and do righteousness. Isaiah is right in the middle of your Bible. So just kind of flick to the middle there. Isaiah 56.1. Preserve justice and do righteousness for my salvation is about to come. And my righteousness to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this. And the Son of Man who takes hold of it. Who does what? Watch. Who keeps from profaning the Sabbath. And keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. Now wait a minute. 
Back in Acts chapter 8, who did righteous Philip baptize? A eunuch. An Ethiopian eunuch. A foreigner and a eunuch. A Gentile who was not only not circumcised, but he was a eunuch. We all know what a eunuch is. Do I need to describe this to you? One word, castration. Done. That's a eunuch. Kings and and rulers would castrate followers in their cabinet so that they would not be a threat to the king's harem. (laughs) Honestly. And this Ethiopian man, starved for faith, looking for faith, desiring God, was a eunuch. You know what that meant for him? It meant he was not allowed into the assembly of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 1. No one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter into the assembly of the Lord. It's Bible. Cheryl saw that verse at the top of my notes on Thursday and went, What are you talking about? (laughs) Yet what does the Lord promise through Isaiah for the foreigner who is also a eunuch who by law, by law is not good enough. By law is unclean. By law cannot enter the assembly. And yet in Isaiah verse 4, thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. (laughs) And don't think the Lord wasn't making a little wordplay. Wow. Amazing. Even the eunuch has a place with the Lord. And the foreigner, the foreigner, continue on. Also the foreigners, verse 6, who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants. Everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called, what did Jesus call it? A house of prayer for all the nations. For all the peoples. The word nations there, on me, it's everyone. Everyone, all the nations, all the ethnos, it's not policy that matters to the Lord. It is people. And righteousness that would exalt a nation is best expressed in our treatment, our acceptance, and our love of people. That is God's word on the matter. That's a paradigm shift. I have I've struggled with this for the last two weeks, trying to make it fit in certain principles that I hold dear politically, and it's not fitting, gang. I wanted to see a wall built as high as possible. Maybe not. Oh, so you're for porous borders? No, I'm for saved people. That's our call. That's what this is about. Back in Acts chapter 11, I wrap this up, verse 18. Well then... Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. And you need to note this, the word Gentiles there is maybe not what you think. It's ethnos. 
God has granted to the ethnos. That is every tribe and tongue and nation, every ethnic group, everyone from every ethnic background. God has granted the repentance that leads to life. And it's the same word, by the way, that Jesus uses when He says, go and make disciples of all nations. It's not nations. We're not to go and make disciples of, uh, of Russia and of Ethiopia and of Syria. We're to go make disciples of all ethnos, ethnicities, people groups, regardless of where they come from, what they may believe prior, how they've been raised. Disciples of all ethnos. So really the question is, are we going to take issue with God on this? Or are we going to take up the Word of God as citizens of a better country and walk directly into our ballot boxes and vote truth? Well, if you vote truth, you're going to lose the election. So what? We will gain our inheritance. It's righteousness that exalts a nation. Being right with God. Going forward, as Peter said, without misgivings. God has gra- I love the last phrase. God has granted to the Gentiles also, and here's the phrase, the repentance that leads to life. The opportunity to turn around has been given, put out there for anyone and everyone that they might have eternal life. Father, you have called us to be a people who love and care for people. Who would put concern for the lost above our politics. And I pray in this season that you will show us, each and every one of us, exactly what that means and how to live by your word, how to stand by your righteousness, how to be the people of Jesus Christ. We need You in these days, Lord. May we continue to stand by the righteousness of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.